The enthusiastic growth and the maturing of their early days had slowly plateaued. Like the Revelation 2 church at Ephesus, they were flirting with leaving their first love. 29 years ago, I was uh, in Pastor Warren Wiersbe's uh, library in his basement and on Lake Shore Drive, and uh, we were talking about the preaching of the scriptures, and Pastor Wiersbe said, Tom, as you, as you begin your ministry at faith, remember this, it, it's not the way it used to be. You, you can't just simply start preaching at the beginning of a book and just preach on through to the end the way you used to. He wasn't saying don't preach the scripture anymore. What he said is, is that the same people that were there when you started teaching a book are not the same people that will be there when you're through the end of the book. And so his recommendation was is that you take the book of the Bible, continue to preach it, but you break it into a series of series, which then forces you to go back and tie things together and remind people where you've been and what has been said. That way, those that have come and joined you since you began the book are able to get caught up to speed. And secondly, those who were there and have probably forgotten much of what you said uh, will also be able to catch up as well. It was very disillusioning this week when Linda and I were on one of our morning walks and I said something about, she said, so what's the passage Sunday? I said, well, we come to the third warning that the apostle gives to these struggling saints in Rome. And she said, well, what were the first two? I was like, ah! Three warnings. You see, the book of Hebrews, and one of the reasons that we're here is, is that you know, two years ago, we, we did Genesis to Revelation, where every sign points to Jesus, and then we followed that up by making our way through the Gospels quickly. Then we came to the, the letters of the seven churches, how is the church of Jesus to behave between the two comings of Christ and all. But the book of Hebrews seems to most succinctly take the story of the Gospel, the Scriptures, and tie it all together in one 13-chapter letter. So the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. So it's heavily theological and it's strongly doctrinal, but it is also pastoral, practical. And so what happens is, is as, as he is writing these great non-negotiable truths, he pauses periodically to speak with a pastor's heart. The first warning that he gave us is in chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It is a warning about disregarding God's word. That is simply finding that it's, it has not yet satisfied what I had hoped that it would. It didn't fill in all the gaps. It didn't pro fulfill all the promises that I had expected and for that reason my my heart is tending to look for something else the second warning came in chapter 3 in verse 12 where he said take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It, it, this is not just simply disregarding God's word, but the next movement along the way is I begin to doubt the sufficiency and the truth of God's word. Satan's first strategy in Genesis chapter 3 was to raise questions about the reliability of God's word. He said to Eve, has God truly said 
raising doubt. Is, this, is what is here really God's word? Is it really what I should take to the bank? Is it really so what I should build my faith, hope, and life upon? Begin to raise questions of doubt. The president of my Bible college, who was a, he was a young seminary graduate at the time, was pastoring, was associate pastor of the church in uh, Oregon. And he had taught a Sunday school class, and, uh, and, and a lady asked for a, a time to meet him in his office that week. So on Tuesday, she came to the office, and she said, uh, Dr. Boyd, I disagree with your interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 2. She said, I, you know, you got to understand that Paul was simply prejudiced against women. And you got to remember that in their culture, uh, only the men were allowed to have an education. And therefore, the Apostle Paul simply wrote it in his culture. That no longer speaks or applies to us. And Bill said he just took the page, from, tore it out, wadded it up, and threw it in the trash can. Her eyes were about this big, and he says, ma'am, what other parts of the Bible do you not agree with? I know that's true, because the Bible that he taught us in had that wrinkled page smoothed out and taped back in. You see, when we begin to disregard God's word, then pretty soon we start to doubt God's word. Does he really mean what he said? Is this, is this genuinely the final word. They were asking that question. Can, can I really trust God's word or not? Which then leads us to the third warning that he gives us in chapter 5, verse 11. And what he does is he has just raised this great thing. Up to this point, he has told us that Jesus Christ is greater than the prophets. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than Aaron. He is greater than all. He's raised that question, and it comes to Melchizedek, the great high priest, and he says of him, he says, there is so much I want to teach you about that, but it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. What you'll notice here is that he starts with this apathy, chapter 5, verse 11, in chapter 5, verse 12, then he will move from apathy over to ambiguity. That is, what does it really mean? What does it say? But by the time we get to chapter 6 in January, we'll find out that it's led to apostasy. You see, people don't abandon their Christian faith. They don't deconstruct their faith overnight. It's a process over a period of time. It starts by just simply letting the dust accumulate on the Scriptures and looking for other sources of hope, life, and direction. And then after a while, it raises the question of it. It, it seems so countercultural. It seems so uh, controversial. It seems so unacceptable. Therefore, there must be an alternative. And it finally leads us to just simply departing from it altogether. I'd like the way J.B. Phillips, he did a New Testament translation of a contemporary reading, and he did it from the original. He wrote it this way, there is a great deal that we should like to say about this high priesthood, but it is not easy to explain to you since you are so slow to grasp spiritual truth. At a time when you should be teaching others, you need teachers yourselves to repeat to you the ABCs of God's revelation to men. You have become people who need a milk diet and cannot face solid food. 
For anyone who continues to live on milk is unable to digest what is right. He simply has not grown up. Solid food is only for the adult, that is, for the man who has developed by experience his power to discriminate between what is good and what is evil. Let us leave behind what elementary teaching about Christ and go forward to adult understanding. So what he does here in this warning is that he's going to pick up the depths and the beauty of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's going to do that in chapter 7. Between here and there, there is a a parenthetical, we call it a bunny trail. He simply takes a bunny trail all the way through chapter 6 to call us back to the reality and the truth of the scripture. He says here about them that the reason that it is hard to explain this to you is not because these truths are so deep, not because they are so mysterious, not because they're so rich, and not because you are intellectually challenged. That's not why it's difficult. The difficulty is that you have become hard of hearing, dull. The word dull is the word for lazy, apathetic, sluggish, numb, unresponsive. As soon as he says that, the Hebrew reader thinks immediately back to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, lazy, sluggish, apathetic, numb, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, they hear with their ears, they understand with their hearts, and they turn and be healed. Now you recognize Isaiah chapter 6 as the text when Isaiah is actually called into ministry. It's the one where he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He talks about the cherubim flying around the heavens saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And he hears a voice coming from the throne and it says, who will I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah foolishly raises his hand and goes, here am I, send me. God goes, thank you. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. Nobody's going to believe you. It's going to be a total ministry failure. Why? Because I have given them one messenger after the other. I have called them time and time again to repentance, but they have hardened their hearts and they have deafened their ears. They will not listen. Now, I love them too much to disown them, but I do love them enough to discipline them. And so I will give them dullness of heart, deafness of ears, and blindness of eyes until such time as I have corrected them and they come wholeheartedly to follow me. Jesus picked it up in Matthew 13. And when the disciples said, so why are you telling them parables? We don't understand what you're talking about, and they don't understand what you're talking about. And Jesus' answer to them in Matthew 13 was, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. Their eyes, they have closed lest they should see, hear, understand, and I would heal them. This word sluggish, as soon as you read that, you're dull and you realize, all of a sudden you realize they are also thinking about the great writings of Solomon in the book of Proverbs. Sluggish, Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. 
The principle is simply this. You, you get what you invest in it, and if you invest nothing in it, you get nothing out of it, and you have to depend on others. Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard, I'm sorry, Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly blessed. Proverbs 19, the sluggard buries, I love this, buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back up to his mouth. This theologically, biblically, means that you do the hard work of listening to the voice of the Spirit and unpacking the scriptures and then you just come and deliver it to us on a digestible palatable level and we'll be fine or proverbs 20 verse 4 the sluggard does not plow in the autumn so he will seek at harvest and he'll have nothing one reminded me a lot somewhere buried in my library office is is the handwritten notes that my daughter don marie wrote back before she uh, lost her battle with cancer. She was a uh, junior high sponsor for us. And she had taught her group of small, uh, a group of girls this truth. And I, somewhere in my office I have the note, I'll find it one day and frame it. But to them she said this, the time to grow in your faith is before the trials come. Because when the challenges arrive, all you can do at that moment is hang on to what you already know to be true. That's what he's talking here. The slugger does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and he have nothing. If you're not going deep, anchoring yourself in the truths of God's word, when hard times come, you'll have nothing to hang on to. I love Proverbs 22, 13. People that are lazy, sluggards, apathetic, they always have good excuses. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. Or Proverbs 24, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, like an armed man. Or Proverbs 24, 14. As a door is on its hinges, so is a sluggard on his bed. You know, sometimes you get up to go someplace in the house during the night and you, you know the door is here, but you're not sure whether it's half open, all open, or closed. But one way you can know is always find where the hinges are and you'll always find the door there. So it is with a lazy person. Go find their bed and you'll always find them there. They just kind of hinge from one side to the other. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. You want to get in a great biblical theological debate, talk to somebody who hasn't cracked their Bible open for the last six months. They have a tendency to know it all. About this, Melchizedek, the wonders of the gospel, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he moves to ambiguity. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, they, they had trusted Christ far enough back that there should have been expected. You see, I want to be careful that we're not... If, if you're a new Christian, then you need the ABCs 
of the gospel. You, you need the simple thing. We all start there. We, we don't even know. I, I, we, we don't even realize that the big numbers and the small numbers on the page are, are direct. They're not part of the inspiration, but they kind of give us resources to direct us through the book and all that. And that there, there are lots of human authors, but one divine author. And just the basics of the word. But there comes a time when you've had the basics laid out before you, or as he calls it, the elementary thing, and he's literally the ABCs of the gospel, that you ought to be able to teach others, but you still need, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. And we won't spend a lot of time on the oracles of God, but basically the oracles of God are the, are the inspired, recorded words of God. It's in, in Romans chapter 2, he asks the question, so what advantage does the Jew have over the Gentile? And he says their advantage is great in every way. It is they who were blessed with the oracles, the sayings of God. He says back in the book of Deuteronomy, what, what nation is there, what great nation that has such a great God who has given them all these great laws and principles to live by? Psalm 147 repeats the same thing. The oracles of God are simply God's revelation about his redemptive plan for lost humanity. So you ought to be able to teach others that truth, but you yourselves still need to be taught it again. The point that he's making here is simply this. He's not saying that everybody who is a Christian ought to aspire to become a gifted Bible teacher where you have 50 people sitting in your Sunday school class listening to you wax eloquent on some passage of Scripture that you've unpacked. It is simply this, that for everything you learn as you're walking with the Lord and in the Word, you are enthusiastically looking for someone to share it with. Oh, you've got to, you can't believe what I just saw in the scriptures. Let me tell you about that. That's what he's talking about. He has not called us to be a reservoir, but he's called us to be channels. Back when I went off to Bible college, my dad was pastoring in McCook. My dad was always into repurposing things. And uh, so we came back, I can remember, in May, and we visited. And uh, in the backyard of the parsonage in McCook there on B Street, he, he had gotten this, this throwaway bathtub. Somebody had remodeled a house and they had a, had a bathtub. And so my dad had, had dug a hole in the yard, buried the bathtub in there. And then long time before you were into water features, you know, he had stones around it and plants and everything. And he had goldfish swimming in it, and my dad would sit out there on his lawn chair and prepare his sermons. That was in May. It was great. We came back to visit in August, right before school started. There's my dad's chair still there. He's still preparing his sermons there. And there was this stinky green scum on the top. There were still goldfish in there. It's just that nobody could see them. And I asked my dad, I said, what happened to the water feature? And he said, well, I leave it like that because it reminds me of the majority of the people to whom I teach the Bible. He said, the problem with the tank is, is it was all input and no outlet. He's talking here. If you're just always taking in, adding notes to the margin of your Bible, but you never do anything with it, you stagnate. You get stuck. And quite honestly, you start to stink. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. So then he goes on to say, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So the oracles of God here are connected with the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness takes us back to the gospel. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So it's saying here is that you are still back at the ABCs of the gospel. Why do you need somebody to remind you again? That the bad news is the good news. That the good news is that there is a holy God. He is the creator. We are his image bearers. He created us in his image. But we rebelled against him. And therefore, as the prophet said, our sins have separated us from God. We can no longer access, come boldly before him. The one who created us to be his image bearer. But he did this wonderful thing. He sent his own son, who is innocent of any offense, to die in our place to pay the penalty we couldn't pay. And so simply by believing in his finished work for us, we are welcomed back into an intimate relationship with God. He said, that's the ABCs of righteousness. You're not able to explain that simply because you're a child. You know, Ray Stedman is one of my great heroes of the pulpit, Peninsula Bible Church, from the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. He used this illustration. I think this is classic. A principal had an open administrative position to be filled. After much consideration, he selected a faculty member with 10 years of teaching tenure. But this promotion brought a strong protest from another faculty member to said, how can you promote them after only 10 years of experience when I have had 25 years of teaching experience? To which the principal responded, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. You have not had 25 years of teaching experience. You have simply had one year's experience 25 times. You'll figure it out over lunch. There's no growth. There's no development. You're right where you were as a teacher 25 years ago. That's what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready, for you were still of the flesh. How do you know you're immature? He answers the question right here. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not behaving only in a human way? I mean, conflict, arguments, battles for control, that's so childish. Linda spent over 20 years teaching two-year-olds in the church. She loves two-year-olds. They're so predictable. Everything in the room is theirs. I've got it in my hand, it's mine. Don't touch that because I'm going to pick that up in a little bit because it's mine as well. That's the childish thing. You want to know if you're spiritually mature or not? Assess the number of people you're at odds with. There's jealousy and strife among you. Or he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all your envy, all your destroying one another's reputations through slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word that by it you might grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Notice verse 13, for everyone 
who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. What is the skill then that we are to develop? He gives that in verse 14. But notice, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. Discernment, that is the ability to make a wise judgment. That's the ability to think critically without being a critical person. The ability to weigh and assess what is right and what is wrong. They have their powers of discernment trained. The word trained, it is the word for uh, going to boot camp in the military. It's, it's going to the Olympic Training Center in uh, Colorado Springs. It's the hard sweat equity of developing your body, your mind, your strength, your skills, your abilities. You have to grow up in your ability to discern what is good and evil. Children don't know what is good and evil. That's why a baby's first word they ever learn is the word no. No. Kenai, the the, uh, granddaughter's dog that lives with us, also the first word that Kenai learned was no Kenai, none of that. My great-grandchildren, they know the word no. Why? Because they don't know what is right and wrong. Somebody has to teach them. He said, why is it that after this long You don't know what is good and what is evil. Why are you still hung up on those things? In the culture, in the age, in the day that we're living in, this is most critical. We need discernment. We need to ask ourselves the question, is the Bible still reliable or not? Is what the Bible says still true or not, regardless of what the culture says? Some of the challenges that this homeless congregation was living with in Rome were issues of infanticide, abortion. Hundreds of babies were born without parents to care for them. When a baby was delivered, if they could identify the perceived birth father, they would take the baby and lay it at the man's feet. And he had a choice Rather, he would take it as his own or reject it. If he rejected it, the baby was carried to a dump outside the city and placed there and left to die. Sounds very American to me. Does the Bible say that every child conceived is an image bearer of God, or does it not? Why is it that sometimes we waver on what is true and right about the dignity of human life in the image of God. Gender confusion. Their Caesar was a practicing homosexual. They had trans issues all over. Yet they had to ask the question, does the Bible still say that God created one man for one woman to live together in beautiful harmony for the rest of their lives, or did it not? Idolatry. There were idols and shrines on every street corner. You see, an idol is just simply what you put your confidence in that gives you a sense of security and significance, whatever it is. I told Linda yesterday when we were walking through our new neighborhood, I said, you know, I'm starting to feel the pressure here. This is like, you know, I said, we're going to have to 
we're going to have to trade up to a BMW or Mercedes or something just to live here because the Tiguan just doesn't look good on the driveway anymore. I mean, it's amazing what we would attach ourselves to, our confidence, we put our trust in. Is it this and the God of this? Or is it the other things? Who wants a God that you can make with your own hands? You can grave eyes, but they can't see, and give them ears, and they can't hear, and a mouth, but they can't speak to you. But we do that all the time. On the way to the church this morning, I drove past the great worship center of Nebraska. Dagon fell this week in Memorial Stadium. And then at Devaney Sports Center, Dagon fell a second time. This time, it, its wrists were broken off. No, I'm not making that up, folks. It's right here in the, it's in the book. Dagon has fallen. Why? Because they, they had sports like crazy. Extreme sports were big in their culture. How, how important is a win-loss record? And they had to ask, is, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And extreme wealth, excessive wealth. If ever there was a congregation that should have received a message on the wealth and health prosperity gospel, these are the ones. They've lost everything for the sake of following Jesus. Rejected by their families. Fired from their employment. Outcasts to their culture and to society. Suspicioned as insurgents for a counter-revolution. If anybody should have said, you know, I, I think I'm a child of the king and I ought to live on a higher standard than this. These are the ones. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Joshua 1.7 Only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left so that you may have good success wherever you go. Growing up and mature in Ephesians chapter 4. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The adversary is always putting temptations in front of us. Has God really said? How am I supposed to know? Well, as I'm learning to grow, I ask others who do know that are more wise and discerning than I. But there comes a time when you become the go-to resource and people say, is this, do you think this is pleasing to the Lord or it's not? Even Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, O Lord God, you have made me your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not even know how to go out or come in. Give your servant an understanding mind that I may discern between good and evil. The issue of spiritual growth is not just simply informational, but it's moral. It's really an issue of the heart. It's doctrinal and theological. You have to know the right things, believe the right things, but it is also practical and ethical. I can tell you what you believe by how you behave. Paul's writings are usually the first half. These are the foundations. These are the things we believe. These are the non-negotiables. 
Second half of his letters, this is what that looks like with sandal leather on it. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. How's that? Rightly handling the word of truth. So it's doctrinal theological. It's first of all interpreting the scriptures rightly. But it's more than that. It's changing your life. 2 Timothy 3.14 As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What were those writings? It was the Old Testament. You learned the good news of the gospel, the redemption plan of God, by reading well, listening well to the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say, all scripture is the breath of God, and it is profitable for reproof. I didn't know that was wrong. For correction, what's the right thing to do? And for training, the sweat equity of righteousness, so that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. It's what I believe influences how I behave. They can't be divorced. If you are unwilling to apply what God is teaching you, He won't teach you anymore. It's first and foremost a moral decision, an ethical decision. Will I be what the Word says I ought to be? James chapter 1, verse 22. If somebody stops me on Tuesday and says, Hey, Rempel, what did you preach on Sunday? You'll most likely see me go, uh, Let me think about that. So I don't expect that you on Tuesday will remember this either. But regrettably, we'll forget it sooner than that. James chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face. And when he gets up in the morning, he looks at what kind of a presentation he's making, not happy with that, doesn't matter. He looks at himself, he goes away and at once forgets what he is like. This is a mirror. This will reveal the hidden character of your heart. But, for a moment, I see what I really am. I'm going to guess that the Spirit of God, because He is alive and well and is present with us, and we've been using His Word, as Gordon said a few weeks ago, it is, this is a two-edged sword. It's able to divide between the joints and the marrow. As my father said, you can't throw a two-edged sword around in a room full of people and not somebody get cut. So most likely, the Spirit of God has spoken to some hearts, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in what he's doing. We will leave here saying, from now on, I will. But by the time we get to the soccer van in the parking lot, the adversary will have come and distracted us. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are the ahas in my hearing God's word over the last year? Did, I, did, did God awaken me to something that I did not know before? Was there any moment when I went, duh, I should have seen that, I've never seen that before? If not, then we are dull of hearing. We're lethargic of heart. You see, 
Maturity will always be seen more in our reactions than interactions. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 says, Now the fruit of the flesh is, and he talks there about strife, anger, conflicts, immorality, and all that kind of thing. But below it, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And he defines it in eight ways. Joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, those kind of things. So the question is, am I mature or not? It's not, am I able to come up with a, a tactical plan or a strategic plan to deal with the challenge or the difficulty that's right in front of me? It doesn't take a lot of maturity to do that. Maturity is revealed when I am suddenly surprised by life and how I react in that moment will tell me whether or not I am a man of spiritual growth or I'm still a baby on breast milk. In the early days, I don't know, we've quit doing that, but we used to say, you know, if you're going to grab a cup of coffee, and you've got to remember there was a time when this room was not a room, it was just all part of the big, the big thing, and, and we had coffee, and we'd say, you know, don't carry the coffee into the hallway because we had small hallways and the children are running everywhere, you see. And that the problem with carrying a hot cup of coffee is, is that you don't plan on burning anybody, but when you get run into, it's too late to change the hot coffee to ice water. Whatever's in the cup is going to spill out. That's the way it is with spiritual maturity. I know whether I'm mature or not by how I respond when I didn't see it coming. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. Here's the biblical formula for spiritual maturing. It's biblical truth, biblical intake, practiced, for a long period of time. And that results in spiritual maturity. There must be biblical intake. There must be doctrinal theological truth. But what I learn, I must do. And if I learn more and do more over time, people will say, there goes a woman of spiritual maturity. There goes a man of spiritual maturity. As you know from the podcast a couple of weeks ago, one of my, one of my life verses is Ezra chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, where it says, and, and the good hand of his God was upon him, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God. What's the good, well, he had led a group of what, 45,000 people from the land of Babylon back home to the land of Israel. While he was the child of refugees in Babylon, he decided he would devote himself to studying God's Word. And then he would practice, he would put into shoe leather, sandal leather, what he learned from God's Word. And then if God was gracious, he would teach his laws and statutes. But this is the interesting thing. He's 600 miles away in Babylon, but his dream is one day I will teach his law and statutes in Israel believe that God would keep his promise. Thirteen years later, Nehemiah chapter 8, and the great revival at Watergate where Ezra stood up to read the word of God and everybody who was of capability to understand stood from morning to noon to receive the word, faithful and finally the opportunity 
came. So the question is simply this. Are you going to be content like infant William Thomas was, existing in an adult body but limited to surviving only on baby milk? Or will you let Charlotte Noel introduce you to a fresh new discovery by expanding your menu options so that to begin enjoying the rich delicacies of maturing spiritual diet? The author says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, and this we will do if God permits. Receive this benediction from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen? Amen.